Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. If you would, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6. This morning we will be reading, beginning in verse 12. Through verse 16. Reminding us last week we reviewed, spent time with those two accusations of supposed Sabbath violations in verses 1 through 11. This morning we look now beginning in verse 12. And the word of God reads, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. It's probably an understatement for me to say this morning that that, that the lives of ordinary men and women are busier than ever. We have more commitments, we have more obligations than the generations which precede us. We're routinely racing from one event to the next. Our minds always are perpetually two steps ahead of where we're going. All the while hoping that we aren't faced with any delays, any any road construction or accidents along the way. And with school back for everyone now, sometimes life can feel like you're just a part of of a machine on the assembly line. That machine that is precisely tuned and as so long as it doesn't suffer a midday breakdown, that machine can orchestrate the intricate dance of getting everyone to drop off on time and getting everyone to work on time and getting back to pick up on time and getting to practices on time and getting to church on time. And Well, by the end of the day, I would say, I can't say getting to bed on time because I know we really just collapse into our beds at nights, like days like that. And I wonder, even if in a time like this, a time of worship, whether you and I have truly devoted ourselves fully as as an offering of sacrifice and praise to the Lord. I know, I've been in plenty of church services, I, I know that there are things that occur that can distract us from time to time. But what I'm asking right now is whether the meditations of our hearts And the thoughts of our minds have stayed tuned to what's actually happening right here this morning. Or maybe have they drifted away to whatever awaits you and I after this? Oh, those oh so many places that we need to go. Those oh so many people we need to see. And those oh so many things we need to do. Did you perhaps take note of the time that I was given the pulpit this morning and you've been here once or twice and you know how long I can go for and so you glanced at your watch and estimated whether you thought I'd get you out on time so as to not intrude upon the plans that you have for the rest of your day. 
Well, if I can be vulnerable with you, I've been guilty of doing exactly that sort of thing. I remember the day not long ago that we baptized siblings, and at the end of the service, I called them forward to present them with a Bible to mark the occasion of their baptism. And I'll tell you, in my mind, I was ready to fast forward to just pray us all out, get us out to whatever was next. And in the midst of that, I forgot that they had given us a couple of verses that were their favorites that we would recite together as our benediction to honor them on their day of baptism. I felt terrible for the kids. I was embarrassed. And I know you're thinking right now, well, this is really sad because you're the guy who's, who's the one who's responsible with putting together the entire order, order of what we do when we come together. How is it that if you put it together that you could skip right past all of that? What in the world was going on in your mind? I'll tell you exactly what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the two concurrent meetings that I had to get to right after worship that both expected my attendance and both expected me to speak into whatever their deliberations were. And even though I was physically present, like standing right there that Sunday morning, my mind was two steps down the road. And some might say, well, you're just too busy. And in one sense, that's probably true on that occasion. But the fact of the matter is, every one of us is busy. I've spoken to some of our retirees, and I know that they've told me that they are busier now in their lives than they ever were before, even with scatterings of kiddos and practices and schools and all this stuff. They're busier now than ever. See, busyness wasn't my issue in that instance, and we've got to be careful that we're not too quick to run down a life that's defined by this word busyness. I'm helped this morning by a pastor from the Pacific Northwest whose name is John Mark Comer. And he writes in a book that's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He writes this. He says that there is a healthy kind of busyness. It will come up on the screen momentarily. There is a healthy kind of busyness where your life is full with things that matter. A life that's not wasted on empty leisure or trivial pursuits. And I really find affinity with that quote because in a way, that's how we might each appropriately apply one of the many passages in the Bible that refer to how we manage our time. Take this one, for example, that comes from Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Friends, we've got to recognize that our time is given to us by the Lord as a gift and we must be good stewards of our time that we're given. So it is a good thing to have a healthy sort of busy to our lives that's filled with things that matter. We look at Jesus and we see a life that's absolutely busy. I mean, even in the brief introduction that Luke has given to us, from the temptation in the wilderness to his many healings, to his teachings at a church gathering through this passage. Jesus has been a busy guy. He's had a life that has been filled with things that matter. And the phrase to key in on from Comer's quote is that, things that matter. Or saying this another way, we've got a bazillion things that, we're e that, that we each face that are vying for our attention, vying for our time, vying for our energy. 
And they all present themselves to us as matters that are absolutely urgent and they need to be addressed right now. Frankly, not all of those bazillion things matter equally. And it's not until we can arrive at, the, at a sense of discernment, a discerning where we can differentiate between the things that really matter from all the other things that can keep ourselves from becoming what I will call the victim of hurry. Becoming a victim of hurry. See, busyness wasn't my problem that day that I'm telling you about where I blew it at the end of a church service. My problem was that I got, into an un, I got into an unhealthy busy. Or if I can say it another way, I got into a hurry. I got into a hurry because I believed everything mattered. Everything was urgent. Everything required attention right there. And because everything mattered, I couldn't keep up with everything without blowing and going in hurry. And in case you're wondering what I mean by hurry as opposed to busy, I want to give you a description of hurry that comes from the famous psychologist Carl Jung. He says this, Hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Now, don't, upon the reading of that, don't take the statement, take that statement to a theological extreme so as to conclude that, that Jung is, de- is denying the existence of the fallen angel known, as, known by the names of the accuser of the brethren or the tempter or Satan or the devil. He's not denying that. Now, here's the point of the quote. The point of the quote is that when we have so much on our plates that the only way to keep up is to hurry through them, And the presence of hurry in our lives accomplishes the very same thing that is the goal of the devil. See, hurry will cut off your connection with the Lord. Hurry will cut off your connection to other people. And hurry even cuts off your own connection to your soul. And we're each tempted to add more to our plates because, well, we tell ourselves that we can just hurry through all of our commitments. We, we maybe have personalities that, that just want to please everyone. We don't have that two-letter word that's spelled N-O in our vocabulary. We just want to make everybody happy. Or maybe we've bought on to the lie that our worth is related to what we can produce. And so to increase our sense of worth, to increase the, the community's uh, understanding of just how great a person you are, we have to do more. We've got to get it done now. And as we've seen Jesus presented to us thus far, we've got to be careful. We cannot think for a moment that he wasn't tempted even in this sense of being hurried. See, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Think about this. From the constant demands that Jesus faced, the demands like, Lord, heal me. Lord, I'm blind. Lord, I can't walk. Lord, I'm a leper. And the list goes on. Jesus never moved across that fine line from busyness over to hurry. What I want us to do this morning is to set our aim to pursue an answer to this question. And the question is this. How can you and I, how can we be delivered from the devil that is hurry? How can we be delivered from that?
Well, as we look to our text, we see that Jesus calls to our attention two more spiritual disciplines. We remember from last week, we were introduced to this concept of a spiritual discipline uh, where we, as we looked at those first 11 verses, we received clarification about the discipline of Sabbath. And Jesus takes steps here to, to, to ensure that his focus isn't distracted from what actually matters. And if we remember back to last week, any spiritual discipline is a practice that can accomplish two things in our lives. The first is this. The first is spiritual growth. And subsequent to that, spiritual disciplines can also deepen our relationship with God. So I want us to walk through the text together so to, to see first what the situation is that Luke is recording before us. So we look at verse 12 together and we notice just those three words that say, um, that open this and it says, in these days. What days? In fact, that's a great question to start. It's a simple one. Which days is it that Luke is talking about? Well, I'll tell you, these are the days that Luke has told us about so far where the ministry of Jesus Christ has been undeniably launched, the days in which the hearts of men were fixed on the rule, on their rules that took God's word and directions that had lost sight of God's heart, where men had confused God's intention with matters like Sabbath. Well, how does that even happen, you might wonder? Well, I'll tell you here at the start, it's never that, that the Bible's wrong. See, the Bible is authored by God, and this ain't a situation where God is the one who's gotten all of this wrong. The problem is not with the author, but the reader. See, all too often when we bring our life's questions to the Bible, we're not ordering those questions correctly. I want to give you a tip as we, as we set out our course here, and that's this. When you read the Bible, when you approach the Word of God, every time you do it, Seek to answer this question first amongst all your questions that you might have. What does that passage, what does that verse, what is it that you're reading tell you about God? Seek to answer that question first. Because here's why. God gave us the Bible to tell us about Him. To tell us about His love for us. So when you read it, seeking to answer this question, then the Holy Spirit is going to grow your love for God and the Holy Spirit is going to grow your love for others. Friends, you and I live in response to who God is. So if you read the Bible by, by trying to first answer something like, well, what does this say about me? Or what do I have to do now? Then you're not going to grow in your love and affection for God. You're not going to grow in your love and affection for other people. No, you're going to grow a sense of disdain and hate for yourself because you can't keep up these rules. And you're going to come to hate God. He's just a rule giver. I mean, you're going to arrive at the same place as the scribes and the Pharisees where the beauty of a life that could have been bound up in God's grace and could have been overrun by God's mercy is replaced by rules all because the Bible has been read wrong. And it's in these days where the intentional decision of Jesus is what we need to key in on. It's how Jesus came to differentiate what matters from everything else. And it's how he lived a busy life that was never hurried. We read as we continue on in verse 12. In these days, 
he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. This brings us to the two spiritual disciplines that Jesus intentionally pursued. They're solitude and prayer. See, solitude is beneficial to us for so many reasons. And in this instance, it's in solitude that the Son of God talks to the Father about men and the frustrations that they bring. Don't think again for a moment that Jesus couldn't have had a frustration or he couldn't have had other feelings that stored up inside him that came from those pesky Pharisees and their Sabbath accusations. Beyond that, I mean, recognizing that he's catching flack on one side from these Bible thumpers, these fundies. On the other side, there's the moans and the wails from those who are just begging for healing. And it's when the volume from all of that noise got most deafening that Jesus went where it's quietest. You know something about this noise from life, I bet. You got all those urgent things that are crossing your desk and they're each crying out for your attention and they say, look at me, man. Uh, Give me your time. Give me your attention. I'm important. You got to work on me right now. We get overwhelmed by that noise. We might, just being in that overwhelming, we might begin to just cry out to the Lord and say, God, please help me. Tell me what I'm supposed to do with all of this. Help me make sense of this. But in the, look at me, I'm important, and you're crying out. How are you going to hear the voice of the Father in all that noise? Jesus went out the quiet of the mountain, pray. You may be familiar with one aspect of prayer, and that's where we talk to God. The Bible tells us to ask God in prayer. The Bible tells us that God is a good father and that he hears the prayer of his children. You may have heard that God loves to give, and to an extent, that's true. But what God gives is whatever is the best. See, God only gives the best because He is loving. Let me put it in these terms. I'm a a father of two beautiful daughters. And I will tell you as a daddy, I absolutely love it when they come to me with something that they're asking for or when they come to me with something that they're struggling with. I like to think that they know that I'm a good dad and I like to think that they know that I want the best for them. And my wanting the best for them doesn't mean that they're exactly going to get everything that they want, that they've brought to my attention, that they've asked of me. But in this exchange, in this continued bringing concerns or, or requests in time, their hearts are tuned to mine. So that when they do come ask and when they do come share, they're asking for better. They're asking for right things. Well, how does that come to be? How might my girls learn to ask for better things? That only comes if they listen to my answer. If we back this into the subject of our prayer time with the Lord, you can begin to see how this follows. Prayer involves our speaking to God. As much, if not more, it involves our listening to Him. Now we can, upon a plain reading from the text, we can see that Luke doesn't tell us specifically what what Jesus voiced to the Father. 
And I would suggest to you that I think that that's the case because I don't think that we're supposed to focus on what Jesus might have voiced in that prayer time. See, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray and he stayed there all night in prayer with the Father. Why? Was it because he had just had a ton to get off his chest? I don't think that's the case either. We read later, we'll get around to Luke 22. It might be like five years at the pace I'm going. But we'll get around in Luke 22 where we're told of another all-night prayer where the Lord gets plenty off his chest at a, at a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. This isn't a night of prayer like that. See, Jesus was quieting that noise of life so he could clearly hear from his Father what mattered. And as we'll see, what matters for Jesus is to bring him back to the reason why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Luke tells us that after a night of solitude, listening to the Father in prayer, that in verse 13, when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Now think about what we know Luke has told us thus far about Jesus' life. Again, on one side, he's got these Bible-thumping legalists that, that might be tempted to give, that he might be tempted to give into the urgency that comes with correcting all their bad takes, correcting all their bad interpretations. And on the other side, he's got these, these, all these people who are physically and spiritually sick coming to him for healing and for salvation, that maybe his temptation there is just to open up a clinic and have a practice until the end of time. If you go back to the, to the legalists, you, you might imagine what it would undertake to go about in the temple and to, to clean up that Jewish temple. It would have amounted to an effort that it would take to clean up any one of our capital cities. Where do you even begin to start in that endeavor? We read in the parallel passage to this event in the life of Jesus that we find in Mark chapter 3, where Mark tells us that the crowd of these people who were seeking healing, seeking restoration, they were so thick Jesus didn't even have time to eat. And upon hearing a word about this, Jesus' own family thinks he's a lunatic to serve so selflessly. And you can imagine in all of this temptation, cleaning up his father's temple, healing the people in whom he has given life to. You can imagine how easy it would have been if you and I were in those sandals to get consumed with what's next. Well, what's, this, what's the domino that has to follow after this first one of correcting the things in the temple? Or what is, what is Joe's issue that's five deep in this line, not even being present to the first four? How easy it would be for you and I to get hurried or to lose sight of what is the Father's best for us. And it's in that time of prayer, it's in that time of solitude that Jesus had intentionally retreated from the potential of hurriedness to slow down the pace of things, to quiet the noise, so that he could hear clearly those whom were to be called to serve as apostles. Now we see a listing of names, and you may not be familiar with those names right now, and if that's the case, that's okay. I assure you that we are going to hear a lot more about them as we, as we work our way through our study of this, of this gospel. But what you need to know right now is that these 12 men have been called by God to preach the gospel and their ministry will extend beyond Jesus' cross. Their ministry will extend beyond the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. 
And it's through these 12 men that God will accomplish what He has willed, what God has purposed in the advancement of the gospel. And it's in that time of solitude on the mountain that the Father shares with Jesus those who will be ambassadors of the kingdom, or if you prefer, who will be heralds, who will be preachers of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. These are those who God is calling to preach. To deliver a message that in death there is life, in surrender there is victory, and that though Jesus Christ died, He's risen. And if we're given the task of putting together a team on our own of such people who would carry out that type of mission. Well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even begin to consider these guys. We would put together a team of people who have the type of skills that we think are best to do this. Not these guys who take their entire lifetime to spread the gospel that would go as far as southern Europe all the way through India, but their short lifespan. We wouldn't have picked these 12. We would have picked 12 who were at the top of their speech and rhetoric classes. People who had pristine resumes and and great references. People who had the right education, the right experience to get the the job done efficiently. We would never enlist people to become heralds of this glorious gospel who were but mere fishermen, a religious nut, a tax collector. Would we? We wouldn't call these kind of guys. Yet these are the names that in silence Jesus was given. Men who each in their own way will testify to the fact that God's strength is revealed in our weakness. These guys were far from perfect when Jesus called them to be apostles. And if I can offer to you all right now, just as an aside, that there are two things that we have to remember when it comes to this matter of God's calling upon a life. And the first is this, that God is the one who does the calling. Not you. Not me. And when God calls, He does so in an affirming and loving way. Just like if you remember when we were reading upon, about Jesus' baptism, when the Father declares of Jesus in this, He said, upon exiting those waters, the Father declares from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. If you remember, as we read along, immediately following that baptism, Jesus is taken up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And He's met there by the evil one. And what does the evil one say? You're the beloved Son of God. I'm pleased in in, in you too. Furthest from it. It's a message of questioning, a message of condescension. If you're the Son of God, if you say you're this, show me the proof. For those who are sensing the Lord's call, reject the lies of the evil one. They only seek to tear you down. In the silence, you'll hear the Father's voice that speaks with love, that speaks with this affirmation, with this encouragement. And that gets us to the second thing about God's calling that comes on a person's life, quite like the first. God is the one who does the calling, not you, certainly not me. God does not call perfect men, nor does he call perfect women to specific tasks in his kingdom. 
God calls imperfect people in the midst of their brokenness to reveal the light of the glory of the gospel through them as he has willed. See, God has not called me as a pastor because I live some, some, some perfect past. Certainly from, far from that. In fact, if you hang out with me long enough, you will see how sinfully imperfect I am. Find some free time with my wife. Go take her for a cup of coffee and she will give you the inside scoop on at least a few of my shortcomings, I assure you. None of our existing deacons are perfect. Men called of God, not perfect. None of those who uh, might be called by God to serve here as deacons in the future, they won't be perfect either. But He calls us all the same as imperfect creatures to reveal the light of the glory of the gospel. And the same is true of these twelve. These twelve whom Jesus was led to call in His time of prayer that focused Him on what actually mattered. The kingdom of God. The kingdom in which He's ushering in. The kingdom in which He reigns. And it's in the kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's in the kingdom where, the, where all the wrongs are made right and the King Jesus will have the final word on everything. And it's in the kingdom that in our dying to self, we are raised to new life in this King, Jesus Christ. And that life we are given by Christ, it's bound up in God's grace. It's bound up in God's mercy. It's a life that is the free gift of God to everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is King and that He's been raised from the dead. See, Jesus Christ, we might ask, God's Messiah, He dies? Someone wonders, couldn't the Father have warned Jesus right now in this solitude of what was going to come His way? That's an interesting question, but I want to help you in giving you a perspective. I want to give you perspective that is the beauty of the gospel. That's the necessity of Jesus' cross. See, from eternity past, Jesus was in agreement with the Father and the Holy Spirit, three in one, that God would enter into time, that He would live without sin, and he would, he would be despised, He would be rejected, He would be betrayed by the very people He came to save. And what mattered for Jesus is accomplishing the redemption of the entire created order, the entire cosmos. And that involved shouldering the shame and the guilt that we have amassed in our sin. And what, what mattered was continuing to head towards this glorious cross. This glorious cross that the world understood as an instrument for torture and death. That the king of the cosmos went through in order to declare that death has died. That he has won a victory over sin. That he has buried death. And to get there, well, Judas Iscariot will play the part a traitor. And my prayer this morning is that in this moment of grace together, that by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, that you and I would have ears to hear what it is I'm about to say to you. What I'm about to say is the relationship of the cross that Judas Iscariot will betray Jesus to and this subject of solitude and prayer. We're in the second message of a series that we're calling Living Differently. And as disciples of Jesus, we are called to live lives that show forth the transforming power of the gospel that is at work in our lives. And when the Spirit applies the gospel in various aspects of our lives, 
the way that we live is altogether different than the way that others live who have not been who have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, who have not been transformed by the gospel. I would venture to guess right now that this whole idea of, of getting into a quiet space for any period of time to speak to or to, to hear from God doesn't just sound different. It sounds scary. In fact, the idea of solitude terrifies you because in it, your mind wanders to the thought that maybe, maybe God's not talking because you're not hearing. Or worse yet, that God isn't there. You, you give into this these notions of your mind's wanderings that, that maybe He's abandoned you. You know, you messed up back at home, and He's just turned His back at you, at you now. He's turned His back on you. Maybe, maybe you've given into the idea that God has forsaken you. I would tell you right now it would be a terrible, it would be a dreadful thing to believe that this God in, in whom I point you to, this Jesus in whom I preach, would be a God that you would describe in such a way that I would characterize as so unloving. Hear this. God has not forsaken you. He can't. See, He's promised His children that He will never abandon them. Because He won't do that because on the cross, Jesus took upon Himself that very forsakenness, that very abandonment, that we fear in the silence. We read in Psalm 22 a, 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 a word from, from the psalmist. And Jesus fulfills this when upon the cross He cries out before he, he breathes His last, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? My friends, when you're in Christ, the last thing you will ever be is forsaken. The very last thing. No, when you're in Christ, my friends, you have been welcomed into a relationship with God through the Son who was forsaken for you. And because He was, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace in prayer that we may receive mercy, we may find grace to help in time of need. My friends, this is a glorious gospel that tells us that we will be delivered from the devil that is hurry when we retreat to the places of quiet to be still. Where we, where we will discover that in the silence, God speaks. In that silence, God speaks love. He speaks truth. He speaks grace. He speaks wisdom to help in time of need. There was an aircraft pilot who was following along a major highway. And he was looking down, surveying at all the land beneath him. He saw the highway. He was looking at the traffic on it below. And one particular car just stood out from the rest and it caught his attention. And the driver, he noticed, was attempting to pass a large truck. But because of, of oncoming traffic and the no passing zones, the double yellow lines, the driver couldn't pass safely. And over and over again, he would, just as he's about to pull out, like you and I do, when, like we're on 173 going to Jordanson or to Honda or something like that, we're, we're trying to pass. But as soon as we, we nudge out, it's like, oh, there's somebody coming and we've got to retreat back, right? We just want to get past it. Now the pilot, being able to see several miles down the highway, he thought to himself, you know, if I can only talk to that driver, 
I could tell when and where it was safe to pass. Friends, God, of course, is the ultimate pilot. And his perfect knowledge is exactly what we need to guide our life. Prayer is how we talk to God. And as we learn to listen to his responses, we will find the guidance that we seek. Now, I want to leave you like we did last week in a similar way with some, with some guidelines for you to take as you seek to apply the disciplines of solitude and prayer. So here they are. Let's start with this. Approach the throne of grace in full surrender. He's king. You're not. Your coming with your petition, if you will, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Because he's king, you're coming with a blank sheet, nothing on it, but your name signed as if you have committed yourself to a contract. You're coming in full surrender. Secondly, when you come, be still and be quiet. And if quiet is not something you can obtain at home, I want you to know we have a wonderful prayer chapel here at church that is available for you to access 24-7, 365. And if you don't know where this thing called a prayer chapel is, ask any one of us. It is the least utilized room or space on this entire church campus. It's available to you anytime, any day. Quiet place of solitude. Thirdly, honor the king. When you come before his throne, acknowledge that he is present. Lavish him with your adoration as he has lavished you with his grace and mercy. Invite him to teach you. Fourthly, be obedient. My friends, if God has has led you and he has shared love, if he has shared truth, if he has shared grace, if he has shared wisdom with you, you don't get to just keep it. Nor do you get to filter it. You get it and you do as he has instructed you to do. Be obedient to whatever it is he has spoken to you. Lastly, give thanks. Give thanks. Remember, in all of this, you do not deserve the relationship with God that you have been given. You don't deserve it. Let the thanks that you lift to King Jesus for the blessings you enjoy... Let them spill over into the routine of your life. And my friends, if you do, that that sense of a cup that runneth over with thanksgiving, that thanksgiving will persist even in the new circumstances that are going to drive you to the quiet and solitude again. They will. May we have ears to hear that in the silence, God speaks. May we have ears to hear that He is capable and mighty to deliver you. The question is, have you been delivered to Him? Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.